Welcome to Downstage Center, a production of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. We're joined today by Richard Thomas. Richard, most people, of course, know you from the Waltons on television, but they're probably unaware that at age seven, you appeared on Broadway in Sunrise at Campobello. Then a year after that, along with Julie Harris, Christopher Plummer, and Hume Cronin, in Ibsen's A Dollhouse. And now you're about to return to Broadway in a new show imported from London called Democracy. That's right. Tell us about Democracy. What, I, I know what it's about, but for the purpose of people who don't, do- Quickly democracy democracy yeah. is is uh, the latest play by Michael Frayn, uh, whose last play in New York was Copenhagen in 2000, I think, which uh, was directed by Michael Blakemore. And this production is also directed by Michael Blakemore. It started at the um, at the National Theatre in London. It moved to the West End, played in London for about a year, just closed there. And so we're bringing it over, and it's a, an amazing play. It's uh, d- d- very different from. Uh, from any any play, I think that's going to be going to be on this season. It's a it's a it's a bona fide real history play, which is something that we don't see very much of anymore. But uh, it's filled with uh, with information, but also very fast moving and very funny and very gripping. I think it's a fascinating play. Now, as I understand it, you play an East German spy. Yes, I do. I'm opposite a spy. James Norton, who plays German, West German Chancellor Willy Brandt. That's right. And how, right. how does that work? Well, the see, this is one of the things that's so interesting. Europeans, of course, the British, the French, are much more aware of each other's political history than we are as Americans of European history for the most part, except for the European history that affects us directly. Um, Willy Brandt, very important chancellor of, of, of West Germany, um, governing mayor of Berlin when the wall went up. Uh, he, was, he was the great... Um, the, the the his great his sort of great contribution was that he began to make peace and treaties with eastern countries after the second world war of course it was very important for west germany to uh, heal the wounds with the west and direct itself to its uh, relationships with the united states great britain france and all that but willy brandt and when he was elected uh, chancellor in the late 60s in 1969 felt that it was also very very important to heal the wounds of separation with the Eastern Bloc, with Russia, with uh, with Poland, especially with East Germany, the other half of Germany, because Germany had been torn apart. So he began this uh, this process of amelioration and reconciliation with the East, and um, that's really where the story begins. My character, Gunter Guillaume, was a was a Stasi spy, an East German spy who was placed in the Chancellor's office and who ended up being Brandt's personal assistant for many years. And when this was discovered and this, and this spy was um, was um, brought out in, in, in the open, Brandt's government came down. Uh, the, he was also a great womanizer, Willy Brandt, and this was something that they also used as a club to beat him down. However, the ironic thing about it is that um, it really was the machinations within his own party and the, the, some of the aspects of coalition government that uh, that brought Brandt down. The spy scandal was merely used, uh, you know, as the weapon to take him down. But but uh, certainly in the play anywhere, there were forces within the party working to get him out. And this is the, one of the ironies of the play. Well, it's obviously, as you say, <coughs> very specific history that Europeans would know. Does the play 
add layers of metaphor to this or is it really just taking this situation and telling the story certainly in Copenhagen there was some sense that there was there there was the very core of the human story around the facts of of the physicists how does how does this play out in in, uh, democracy well it's a very good question and as with Copenhagen what's all of the above are true Um, it is the story very much of what happened in Germany uh, there's a huge amount of information about German politics and European politics, and it's fascinating. There's a lot of it, just as there was a lot of information about physics in Copenhagen. It also has at its core the story of a relationship, the relationship between um, this great leader and this man who adored him and, and was was uh, admired him and, and, and was betraying him to these Germans at the same time. Very, very interesting story about betrayal and about trust. Uh, and that is set against the wide panorama, this historic panorama. In fact, in my opinion, it's very much like a Shakespeare history. Um, It has great sweep. It has great movement. It has lots of characters, all guys, 10 men, guys in ties, I call it, (laughs) um, moving across history and across the years at great speed, uh, and yet at the center, it has a very intimate story, and it's very inward. All of the characters um, reveal... Uh, almost in a kind of shorthand, their own inwardness, especially Guillaume and Brandt. So you have a political play, a history play, a play of intimate relationships, and a play of philosophy. And it's interesting because at least some of the period overlaps with a play which is now wrapping up its Broadway run, but I Am My Own Wife deals with East Germany in close to contemporaneous part of that. Yes. So... So obviously that has translated for audiences, so people shouldn't be put off if they're starting to hear all of these names about West German politics right. and Stasi spies. I don't think um, – what I'm hoping and what I'm sensing – I saw it in London um, – is that the sweep of the play pulls you along with it. And even if you don't get all that information right off the bat, things are reiterated and supported so often through the text that by the end of the evening, you really do understand what happened. He wants you to get the nub of it. He wants you to understand, essentially, the subject of the play. I mean, it's not called Willy Brandt, and it's not called Gunter Guillaume. It's called democracy. And what it is about is, um, I don't know, if if Copenhagen was about... um, uh, you know, physics and and uh, the and uncertainty, then democracy is very much about chaos theory and complexity. Uh, the idea that out of out of these these fifty million egos that make up the, the German public, you know, public out of all of these different coalitions and all these different parties and all these different political factions, that somehow a consensus and a reconciliation is reached and a government goes forward which looks simple and clear and which has clear institutions is a bit of a miracle because what's at the heart of this play is the extreme complexity and contingency of these kinds of experiences. It celebrates this, this chaos and complexity of the democratic now, process. You've used the word complexity several times. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, this Gunter Guillaume sounds like a very complex character, quite a dark character. Well, he is complex. He's not He's not dark strictly. In the, I mean, he is the antagonist, and yet uh-huh. it's very interesting what he's done. He's done so many extraordinary things with, with the play in terms of the form. Um, Brandt, of course, is the central, the king figure, the central figure. Guillaume is the, is the antagonist, and yet he's not the villain of the piece. The villain of, the villain of the piece is political... Is the um, is the is the political betrayal and the men in his own cabinet who are who, who who work against him to bring his downfall? The interesting thing about Guillaume, he is a spy, and yet at the same time he's the innocent in the play. He's the play who actually he's the the man who actually learns about his own country, learns is is seduced and falls in love with the democratic process. 
um, and ends up identifying with this man who he's betraying. So in a way, even though he is duplicitous, he is actually an innocent. Brandt, who is a very uh, sympathetic, warm, and likable figure, is also a man who has had many identities in the past and who is very conflicted about his own sense of self. So at the core of the play, there are fantastic uh, uh, discussions of, of, of identity, self, uh, the, the false self, the constructed self. And, um, you know, being a spy is very much like play acting in this, in this particular piece. No. Now, uh, other than flying to London, how did you prepare for this part? Did you research the whole situation? Or? You know, the, the <laughs> once you've really read this play, you re- uh-huh. know just about everything you need to really? know about uh-huh. what's uh-huh. going on. Um, there's a, in, in the published version, uh, the, in the UK, there's a terrific afterward by Michael Frame where he discusses why he wrote the play, what the play meant to him, and gives a lot of historical background, which was very, very useful for me. Looked at a lot of pictures. We've looked at a couple of documentaries. Um, the... Uh, because the play has been done before and, and brilliantly directed uh, already and is being s- the production is being set on us, we are benefiting from a great deal of the research and a great deal of the learning that the, pre- that the director and the previous company uh, had to work to get. So we're sort of inheriting all of this terrific information. It's been very useful for us. How did you first become attracted to this, this part in this, this show? Well, it was sent to me, actually, and, I, uh-huh. and uh, I read it, and I was completely fascinated by the play. I, the first time I read through it, I didn't understand it. Then the second time I read through it, I got very excited, and as and it reveals itself beautifully. This shouldn't be daunting to an, to an audience, because you don't see it on the page. You're going to see it alive on the stage. So the audience gets it the first time around. You will be, well, that's what we're, we're going to do. <laughs> that's so. our job. <laughs> um, and, and, uh, and, and I was fascinated by it, and I had been, I had been sent the script actually... Um, just because Michael Blakemore wanted to meet with me, and I read it, and I was immediately attracted um, by this particular role. I I just felt, um, I I loved it. I thought it was a wonderful part, great challenge. And the timing of this is rather fortuitous in that you just made the decision that after 30 years in Los Angeles, you would move back to New York to do more on stage. I mean, the timing timing was pretty good to come back to New York and and land a Broadway show immediately. I'll I'll tell you, on the 10th of May, my wife, I was here doing Stendhal Syndrome, Terrence McNally's play, and we were having, having lunch. And um, we got a call from New York. They accepted uh, our, they, you know, they agreed to our price on the house we were selling in, in, in LA. Uh, They accepted our offer on the apartment in New York. Uh, my little boy got accepted into his school after the interview, and I got the call asking me to be in this play. All on <laughs> all, the same day. All in one afternoon. Oh, my goodness. So my <laughs> wife and I said to ourselves, we should just get out of the way and let all this happen. <laughs> it was just meant to be. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I One hopes so. Either, either that or it's been a huge mistake. <laughs> but, but let's go back because, as John mentioned in, in, in introducing you, you did – you were you – were, got your equity card at age seven. Yeah. And – your parents were dancers. They were not actors. They were. That's right. My mom and dad, uh, Richard Thomas and Barbara Fallis, were ballet dancers. They danced for many years with many, many different companies, Ballet Russe and um, with with uh, Alicia Alonso in Havana, with Ballet Theater. And then they danced. When I was a boy, they were uh, dancing with Balanchine's company here in New York and on tour. Uh, so I was raised backstage, really at City Center um, and, and on tour. That was that was my that was my childhood. My dad went away to do uh, some stuff in summer stock one summer. He was dancing and doing some stuff, and I went with him for for summer. And um, just there was an opportunity for me to get on stage and sing. You got to have heart in a production of Damn Yankees. Mm. 
and I did it, and that was it. And so, then you I came back to New York me, and started auditioning? They couldn't get me off stage. <laughs> now, how, how old were you when you did that? Uh, six. 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 Le- my late sixes. A child prodigy. But, <laughs> late sixes. <laughs> but I, my first grade teacher happened to be a children's agent. <laughs> So, <laughs> she was, so, so teacher during the day, agent teacher during at the night, day, agent by night, and and she and called my folks and said, "Listen, they're, they're, um, the young boy who had opened uh, the show was leaving to do a show called JB, and they were replacing the the young actor playing John Roosevelt, and they said they really they're looking for someone. We know your son is interested. You know, I know you, you know that he did something in the summer. Would he like to come in and read? Uh, and I did, and got the, got the part. So it was fantastic." And then just continued to audition because yeah. you worked a lot as as a child. I worked and then constantly. As a young man. I worked. I was here in New York. You know, I worked uh, on Broadway and off Broadway. I worked. Uh, did a lot of television, which was then, of course, live, and uh, it was a fantastic place for a child actor to to, to grow up. And then I, I and then I started working in Los Angeles years later when I went to do my first movie, like in 1968 and stuff. But but this is really where I learned and sort of did my apprenticeship as an so, actor. Both moving back to New York City, back to your home, and returning to Broadway, you really are returning home. Oh, I am coming home. This yeah, is all literally quite. Literally. Oh, I'm absolutely. I'm so happy. I can't stand. Now it. you've you've worked on the stage, obviously. You've worked in film. You've worked right. in television. Mm-hmm. Any preference for any one of those media? Well, I have a particular love for theater. It's my first love, and it's what I. It it, it just fires me up the way. Is it he, is it films. hearing the live audience? Is, it's all. It's a, it's a million things. It's probably. Be, it, it, it probably is partly because I was raised backstage, and mm-hmm. and my earliest earliest memories are of being in a theater, and and the the extended family of a ballet company, and the and the, the just what happens backstage. So it's it's more than just the process of what happens being on stage with me. It's sort of it's it was kind of really home. Uh, my earliest homes were really in theaters, so I'm, I love it. I love the the feeling of company. I love the fact that everybody gets together. Everybody gets together on the, every night to do the show all together to make the play. I mean, you can do a television film or a movie and not meet half the people who are in the picture until the rap party, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and this isn't to say that, that film is not a great technique and a terrific art because I love that too. Uh, but the theater is somehow a prior experience for me, so I have a particular f- feeling about it and, and love for it. Um, the Julie Harris, Christopher Plummer Doll's House you're talking about actually was a Hallmark Hall of Fame. That was a TV show in what they call the Golden Age. I did a lot of those shows in Armstrong Circle Theater, DuPont, you know, Show of the Week, um, all of that kind of stuff, which were as, was another great place to train. Have you ever gone back and looked at any of those? Have you had the? I, mean, I assume they're over at the Museum of Television and Radio. I have, yeah. As a matter of fact, that Doll's House was reissued a few years back, and I was just a wee boy, and I played one of the children, very, very, very small part. Uh, and uh, but there I was, you know, just a zygote actor. <laughs> now you mentioned mentioned both your parents, ballet dancers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Any ballet on your, on your resume on your bio? No, none, well, actually, it's not on my resume. However, I have to. <laughs> Is there a reason? <laughs> he's he's blushing now for the radio yeah. audience. Yes, I was never asked to return. I was never asked to extend this part of my career. But funny you should ask. The when the last season of the old Met. When the Kirov Ballet came to do their final season at the Old Met, they were doing two. They were doing a production of Raimonda and a production of Cinderella. And an old colleague of my mother's was running the children's court of ballet for that. And they, my mom and dad said, "You really should get on this 
stage before they tear it down. And you should have this experience of just getting on stage at the Old Met. And I had taken class from them and everything. I mean, I was not a terrific dancer, nor a prophet, nor did I have aspirations to be, but I knew just enough to get away with it. And so I was a slave boy in Raymonda and a grasshopper in in uh, in Cinderella with the Kirov Valley at the Old Metropolitan <laughs> Opera House. However, they never asked me to come back for another season. <laughs> Now, I asked you before about, you know, theater versus film versus television. Yeah. How about within theater? You've played all sorts of roles. You've played Shakespearean roles. Sure. You know, Richard II, Richard III. You've played you know, What You're Doing Now. Any preference, any particular type of role that you particularly look to play? No. I, I One of the things that's that's so exciting, sort of it's a part of you know, finishing up the question you asked before, is it's one of the things that is so thrilling about theater is the text. I'm a, I'm a real text-oriented actor, and uh, these great texts are really thrilling. Um, to do a close reading of these plays, these great, you know, dramatic works, and to begin to, I mean, to attempt to to understand and investigate these great characters, these these creations of these great playwrights, is deeply satisfying and very challenging. And it's such a variety um, uh, that's available that uh, I, I, I'm not really... Yeah, I want to do it all. I mean, there's so, there's so many different <laughs> things to enjoy. You've also had the opportunity to work with a remarkable range of directors. Yes. Uh, Peter Hall, Mark Lamus, um, Robert Wilson, Peter Sellers. Yes. And that all seemed to come it, – it seemed like that all began kind of in the mid-'80s, that you really yes. were swept up into a long series of classical work. Right. and And that really began. You'd done intermittent stage work, it seemed, up till then. Well, I'll tell you what happened. I, I had gone away to, to start making movies when I was about 17, and I made a whole bunch of made like 10 movies in a row, and then I ended up doing this television series, and I'd done lots of guest things on, you know, guest spots on series at the time, and then did a whole bunch of movies, and then uh, got into the series. I, I took my first hiatus, my first hiatus in the, on the first year of the Waltons. They asked me to do a show at the Amundsen Theater um, to play the Dauphin in, in St. Joan that Arvin Brown directed. And I got back into rehearsal, and I thought, I haven't done a play. Now, this seems like a lot of stuff, but it was only about five years in which I had not been on the stage. And I thought, you know, you've gone from being a child actor to being a young leading man on, in front of the camera, but you haven't learned how to do this on stage yet. There's so much catching up you have to do. So I made it a point from that, from that year on never to let a year go by without doing one or more, if possible, uh, shows. And then when they finally asked me to come in and, replace our late, dearly departed, you know, Chris Reeve uh, in 5th of July, um, I was kind of ready because I realized I had a lot of catching up to do, and I spent a lot of time getting ready for that moment. I didn't know when it was going to come or if it would come, but it did, so I was happy, and once I got the bit in my mouth with that, I just... That was it. I knew I was back again, and that was what I cared about the most. How about comedy, musical comedy, any interest there? Well, I have some interesting almost uh-huh. experiences in musical comedy. Um, I'd love to do one someday. It would be really a, it would be a real treat. Uh, I, comedy is, you know, for me, I mean, I'm not a comedian, um, but, I've, but I like to find the humor in any part I'm playing. Um, I mean, if you can get some humor out of Brother Julian and Tiny Alice, you've, you've, you've done a hell of a night <laughs> of theater. <laughs> well, and, and I did. But, I, no, I like to. I mean, you know, I had, a, I had great time doing the role of Ivan in Art in the West End a couple of seasons in a row, and that's a very funny and wonderful part. Um, so I just, you know, I'm, like I said, I'm a greedy actor. 
it's not my specialty to be funny, but it's something that I that I like to do. Uh, you know, it's it's tough. There was an episode of uh, Law and Order Special Victims Unit that you that were on funny, a couple years ago. <laughs> yeah, you were really creepy on that show. On that yeah, episode. Well, and now that you're back in New York, I would imagine we'll see you again. Yes, I'll, like I'll, be a, I'll go be a creep for Dick Wolf anytime you want. <laughs> uh, no, I um, I love doing that. I have a, a kind of a, a nice um, portfolio of you know like what I call my problem children, you know serial killers and mm-hmm. you know poisoners, crazy people, bombers. Hostage takers, and you do it so well. It's, I kind, know. Of, it's kind of scary. Well, ask my children; <laughs> <laughs> they can it's, always tell you the truth about the father. You certainly you have done those in in yeah. TV, movies, on television. Certainly, how much does the persona that certainly was etched into the public consciousness, your role as John Boy, mm-hmm. how much does that affect? Do you think how people perceive you in roles? Are you able to subvert that? It is a role that you played for five years. You haven't played it in almost 30 years. Right. But it, it sticks with you. Sure does. What's, what's the effect of that? And is it something you've, you've had to fight in terms of casting? Absolutely. Um, there's no question about it. And I want to say right off the bat, it's a, sh- it's a show I love doing and I'm, that I'm very, very proud of. And I love that part. It was a terrific part. I was grateful, grateful to have it. Sorry. Just came from rehearsal. Um, and... Uh, However, having said that, it is anybody who has been in a hit television series um, will tell you that that it is it's a very powerful thing to to not just overcome, but to even balance with other work. Um, it and especially when you go into people's homes and you become a part of their lives on a weekly basis, they they feel that you. One of the natures of television celebrity is that they feel intimate with you and close to you. They feel they know you. Mm-hmm. They, you come into their home, and especially if you're playing a family character. So you they this 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 idea of you as this person becomes ingrained. And you know, let's face it, most people in audiences don't make it their business to pay attention to what everybody does in their career and if they went in why should they you know it's not it's not their business to keep abreast of what i'm doing it's my business to entertain them and so there's a whole section of the population for whom i will always be john boy walton and a whole section of the population a smaller one who go to the theater who know about it but are interested in other things so you know you just take it you just do the best parts you can i have done roles i've had fun Subverting the image um, with with villainous parts, uh, and um, well, I have to comment in in the production of Hamlet at Hartford Stage, right. which we were involved in together a number of years ago. Um, there was a point at which exiting the stage, you call out "Good night, mother." Yes, I know, um, and um, <laughs> it it was a laugh line every yeah. night with nothing yeah. more because because of what that triggered, and they're obviously. The choice is either to alter Shakespeare, which is never a great idea. Or get a laugh. How bad is that? Or get a laugh. And so, <laughs> when uh, it's not intended. <laughs> you just have to take it. You know, they, it's, um, it's as I say, it's a very, especially a part like that. I mean, it's, it was really iconic for a lot of people. That no, role. It's and it stood for a certain thing. And, and, uh, and it's still there. I mean, I had to they'd say goodnight. John Boy at the end of 5th of July, the first act of 5th of July, several times a week it would happen. Um, you know, it's the, up to the public. They can do whatever well, they want. Well, it's kind of a double-edged sword. The good part is you had a starring role in exactly. a very big TV show. Exactly right. The other side of the coin is have to get beyond that. Exactly right. I think to some degree, though, every career, every actor who has been blessed and lucky enough to work and have some success in the business 
at some level has had, there are a few exceptions, but at some level has had a, a certain initial and strong success with which they become identified. And whether it's they're always playing superheroes and they want to be taken as serious actors or they're always they're comedians and it's very funny and they want to be serious or they're or they're, they're very serious and they want to be funny or they played there's all kinds of things what i really want to play is this what i really want to play is that one becomes known for one's first great success and that's a struggle to to work to incorporate that into a career and to overcome it are is a part of a most actors struggle i think so in that transition you you are not trained as an actor, per se. You didn't go to acting school. You no. don't have a graduate degree no. in, in acting. How do you, you... You went from being a child performer and just doing it on instinct to doing film and television work. How then do you do you prepare to play Hamlet, Puck, Richard III, all of these roles? Is, did, is, is that a technical facility that you had to develop or... Sure. And and how did that come along? For Pay you? attention. One of the great things about being a child actor is that you get to watch grown-up actors work. And I was very lucky. You know, when you're a kid, when you're a child actor, you're usually playing somebody's son. And if you're lucky enough, your parents are, you know, Paul Newman, Joanne Woodward, Julie Harris, mm-hmm. Christopher Plummer, Barbara Bel Geddes, Barry Nelson, Geraldine Page, Ben Gazzara, you name it. I mean, the list goes on. I had years and years and years of all these fantastic actors to watch, to pay attention to, to listen to, a lot of wonderful directors. Um, and and then you, you, you feel that you've learned something. It's like going, it is going to school. It's, it's apprenticing is what it is. It really is the old way of apprenticing. And I think it's a terrific way to learn how to do this particular profession. I think it's great that there, that there are theater programs and, because so many kids from all over the country, all different parts of America can study and become professional actors. I was lucky. I was raised in New York in the theater, and I had a different entrance into it. But, but you can learn on the job in this, in this profession in a wonderful way, and that's really what I did. As far as the texts are concerned, I just I like text. I love the words. I love, I love the words. I love the music of the words. I love that each different playwright has a different sound as a you that you can unpack their speeches differently and you can listen for their you know how they build speeches and how they build characters it's terrific i, I would imagine it's like scores of music was it was there ever a point in your formative years when you thought about being something other than an actor maybe a fireman or a police chief or, been, or or that your parents said don't go into the theater there have been times in my life when I was afraid that I would have to be something else besides an actor, but that's a very, very different kind of fear because I don't think I know how to do anything else. Uh, no, never. I never, never wanted to ever do anything else. I've always been very – I've written. I like writing. I have a huge admiration for writers. I've published a few small books of poetry, which I'm, you know, in my own small way proud to have done and, hap- you know, happy that I got a chance to do. Um, I have no – make no – pretense about being a writer but but uh, that was that's really sort of the only mm, torch I've carried other than just wanting to be an actor I love it. I'm very lucky I've gotten to and, do and your parents being in the theater themselves in ballet never said oh get a real job something that you can always no. have a job well I'll tell you one thing about ballet dan- being raised by ballet dancers it is a real job and then and, and you know this business this question you ask me about preparing for a role when you're raised by, by dancers, the, the discipline and, and you get to watch how they go to work and how they work with a choreographer, the idea that they work in repertoire all the time, um, the, 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 the work ethic of my parents and the collegial 
experience of the ballet company, the extended family collegial example, was really great for me. And and I was, I got lucky on that. No, they encouraged, they loved it. You know, they were happy. I want to come back to you were talking about the text and the reliance on the text and your prior New York stage appearance to to Democracy, which is is now just about upon us, was uh, Terrence McNally's Stendhal syndrome, and. Terence McNally is a playwright who, certainly of living playwrights, I think who you've probably returned to the most. Mm. There's there's the Shakespeare guy, but he's not in the room. And I'm just wondering about the affinity and the relationship as as an actor who keeps working in in a certain writer's with a certain writer's voice. It's interesting. It's a great question, and every actor has the various playwrights that they have a particular affinity for. Uh, if it's a living playwright, you're really lucky. Um, it's a great experience to um, to have a relationship with a playwright you respect. Terence is is part of a generation of writers, <laughs> along with Edward. Um, he's younger than Edward, but it's that, that in that period Edward in New Albee. York and the Edward Albee in that period in the sixties and all that. It's a particular sound and style in a way that went into my ear as a young actor. It's a it's a particular feeling about writing. It's kind of ineffable. I don't if I if I had more time I could think about it sort of explain exactly what I mean. However, you, you, you internalize the playwrights you hear as a, as in your youth. And um, for some reason, I mean, from the time I did Andre's Mother and then, then after that Lisbon Traviata, I just, I just fell in love with, with his work for many reasons. They're language plays, which I love, and they are plays in which the, at some point the, every, the actor has to be completely exposed. Uh, you can run, but you can't hide. There's no place to hide in a Terrence McNally play. He's going to put you right out there on a limb with him. He's going to get out there with you, and you're going to saw away until it falls off. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's very exciting. And so there's no cover. And when he sent the Stendhal Syndrome, and he, you know, he sent me the play, and he said, look, this may not be your cup of tea. However, I think this may be a part that you would really enjoy. I read it, and I thought, I told him, I said, if any other actor gets within 50 feet of this play, I'm going to kill him. I thought, I don't, it was mm-hmm. terrible to have that feeling. I was like a dog over my dinner. I thought this role is just fantastic. It was a beautifully written part and so passionately written. Terrence's passion, his, his, the, 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 what I like to call the fierce vulnerability of his characters, because they're fierce, but they're extremely open and vulnerable, appeals to me a great deal. And and then contrast or compare that with now working with Michael Frayn, who comes out of the British tradition. Very different. And very and and how how do you adjust, adapt, and how does how does that uh, play for you? Frayn's music is very very different uh, in this play. Certainly, it um, every excess word, ex- every extra word has been taken out. And there's I I think there is no fat on the text at all. It's it's just what needs to be said. Um, certain speeches read almost as if they're written in shorthand. The phrases can be quite long. There's some Marlovian lines in it, but but there are there's great concision, uh, no sentimentality, but a great deal of feeling and 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 passion. But um, so it's a it, it it isn't drier. It is highly cerebral. But it's densely, densely packed and stripped away of any excess. There's no fat on the bones at all. So it's it's quite a great contrast within within one year on yeah. New York State. That's true. It's an amazing contrast. Well, democracy goes into previews 
in a couple of days on uh, the 3rd of November. 3rd of November. And then it opens on November 18th. Yes, it does. So curtain will go up. <laughs> yes, it will. <laughs> You'll be the ready. <laughs> the other day we, we started rehearsal and all of a sudden it was we were about a week from previews and we didn't feel the news tighten, as I said in rehearsal, but we... But we did feel it drop ever so lightly on our shoulders. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, we're heading to wrap up, but I did want to ask you one more question. You've had the unique experience on this show of rehearsing on the set Amazing. the entire time. Amazing. We went into the theater on the set. The set had been built. Now, growing up, we used to rehearse in the theaters a lot. Uh, they'd tape out the stage, you know, the way it would be in a rehearsal hall, and you do your theater pro- you know, rehearsal process on the stage, go out for a few days, and they load in. For this show, because it's a two-level set, they built the set, and we've rehearsed every day on the set. It's been an incredible luxury. I wish all actors could have that Great experience. Great advantage, right? Yeah, it really is. Well, looking forward to seeing Democracy. I should mention it's at the Brooks Atkinson Theater here yep. in New York. And again, let me repeat, goes into previews on the 3rd of November, opens on the 18th. I want to be sure people understand that yep. it's happening right now. Well, it is, and we're, <laughs> we'll give you a good time. Well, Richard, thanks so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. Thank you. I'm Howard Sherman for the American Theater Wing. I want to remind everyone that you can listen to all of the Downstage Center interviews as well as other media programs of the American Theater Wing as free streaming audio and video from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway for Downstage Center. That's a wrap, and thank you.